0: The scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. You can find it printed on page 10 of your worship folder. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you? than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. Over one sinner who repents. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection.
1: Lord, we invite you today to come sit with us, sinners, people that run from you often, Lord, but today come to us. We call upon your spirit to open us up, open our hearts, our minds, our bodies. Everything that we are, Lord, that we might receive you, that you might commune with us, that we might be lifted up by you and loved by you today. Amen. Hello, church. Hello. Yeah, let's do this. Let's do dialogue. I have something to tell you. It's good, right? I'm preaching. I should. Um, <laughs> When I was a senior in high school, I called up Melissa St. Clair, asked her to go to prom with me, and she said to me, I'm going to check my schedule. (laughs) I might be working at Ross that night. When a young woman tells you she's going to check her schedule, that's a really polite way to say, I don't want to go to prom with you. (laughs) I would find that out later, and it would crush me, crush my ego. Uh, It took about five lonely years to pick up the scraps of my ego, (laughs) to ever ask a girl to do anything with me after that. Um, I was a pretty lonely guy in college, honestly. Um, I had this other thing that would happen with me and girls. Um, They would come up to me like at a party, and they would be like, hey, Paul, how you doing? And I'd be like, oh, hey. And they would be like, I saw you on campus the other day, and you were by the art building. I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to do my best Cindy Crawford because it was the 90s, and everyone did uh, what Cindy Crawford did. They up-talked. You know, everything sounded like a question. <laughs> I'm serious. It's the thing. Look it up. Um, and they'd say, yeah, I saw you on campus, and you looked really lost. And I would be like, so you noticed me? And then they yeah, but you look like a scary little puppy. And I would be like, I was not lost. I've been here for four years on campus now, and I'm an art major, so it makes complete sense that I would be next to the art building. I totally know where I'm going. This happened multiple times to me in college, where girls would tell me, you look, I saw you on campus, you look really lost. It wasn't until years later, I told this to my wife one day, she goes, oh yeah, you got resting lost face. (laughs) Uh, She she diagnosed me, I have RFL. (laughs) Like... For this reason, I think I am the pastor that needs to preach upon this passage from Luke 15, because it's all about being lost, and I'm apparently pretty good at it, at my just standing state. Um, I love this passage. I was so happy when I got it, because the lectionary is kind of like, you know, a slot machine that just gives you a passage, and you don't know what you're going to get, and you try to preach on it. And we do that because we don't want to cherry-pick our messages you can do that with scripture. You can cherry pick. You can make it say whatever you want. We try to use the, the scriptures throughout the liturgical years, and sometimes you, you'll get a stinker. <laughs> this is a winner. Um, and what I like about this is that it stops at verse 10. The parable uh, Luke gives us is actually three parables in the larger um, chapter of 15 You have the lost sheep, you have the lost coin, and then the lost... Come on, Bible nerds. (laughs) The prodigal son, right? And how many times have you heard a preacher preach on the prodigal son? I'll answer. Too many times. (laughs) Too many times. Preachers love the prodigal son. I actually don't like it that much. (laughs) Little secret. I have a sister that ran away at age 18, and and she's never come back. So every time I hear about the prodigal son... I'm like, ouch, I'm still waiting for my sibling to come back home, and it's never happened. I have, I have some baggage there. I have some paint. So I got this passage. I was like, sweet, stop that the coin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, I messed up. Uh, but I love this passage, and I want to get into what it means to be lost. I want to get into what it tells us about God. But first, I want to look at the context of this. If you look at the first verse, it says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. What do we have here? I have a master's degree in biblical studies, so I'm going to tell you what we have going on in this context. This is your typical teenage movie. It's a trope from a teenage movie. You got your cool kids in the cafeteria sitting at the table, right? They hold all the power, all the privilege. They run the school. And then you have the other table, the outsiders, the sinners, the losers. And they're supposed to sit over here. And then who walks in? This is, we've all seen this teenage movie, yes? Who walks in? The new kid from Galilee. And where does he sit down, and where, who's he eating with? The losers. And what happens in the teenage movie then? Uh, there's some grumbling from the Pharisees and the scribes, and they're saying to them, this guy is charismatic, he's a leader, he's, he's got a following, but yet he's sitting over at the loser table. And it happens in every teenage movie, and you're just kind of like, ah, oh, teenagers, huh? Why are the cool kids so worked up about somebody where somebody sits? And it's, the reason is because there's a hierarchy to the seating chart in the cafeteria, right? And the new kid from Galilee is sitting in the wrong place. And it's threatening to them. So after all, what goes, what goes better with privilege and power than insecurity? Jesus comes... On the scene, and he is way off script from the Pharisees and what they believe about God. They believe things about the scriptures and about the temple that you must follow to climb the ladder to God. And here Jesus is, he's saying things he shouldn't be saying. He's telling people that their sins are forgiven. He can't say that. He's doing things he shouldn't do. He's healing people. He healed a a man with a shriveled hand. And worst of all, he did it on the Sabbath day. He is way off script and threatening their power and their authority is at risk. They're used to being in control, especially when it came to religion and politics and bringing them together. They held the power and they were threatened by the new kid. Well... I want to spend just a second, though, humanizing the Pharisees because it's really easy just to throw them under the bus and not really learn from their lives. So let's, let's just pause for a second and look at the Pharisees. They'd probably worked pretty hard to get to where they were, yeah? They were probably had good justifications of why they, they held everything together they probably had some charisma and stuff that they, they wanted to use, their talents. They might not have been the worst people in the world at one point, but they were getting there. You know, Richard Rohr, there's a lot of Richard Rohr fans here, right? Everybody loves Richie. Yes, that's enough. Um, <clears throat> But we can kind of be kind of a weird church. You know, we, this is a church, if you're new here, we kind of love the Enneagram, so we can be one of these churches that like, hey, I got eight donuts because I'm a seven. <laughs> it's like code talk, you know, cliche talk. We kind of do that with Roar, too. We can be like, oh, first half a living, second half. <laughs> you know what I'm talking. You've read the books. We love Richard Warb because he talks about spirituality, he talks about the spiritual journey, and he does a masterful job of explaining what the first half of life is like in the spiritual journey, and he talks about the second half that we hope we would get to, that we need to get to in life. The Pharisees are an archetype of the first half of living. They have worked incredibly hard to get to where they're at, I would assume. They are the ones that have built the container. They are the ones that hold the power and the authority. Um, Rohr says in his wonderful book, Falling Upward, if you haven't read that, I highly suggest it. He talks about the first half of living, especially when you're young, you have a dualistic mindset. And he says this, the dualistic mind, it compares, it competes, it conflicts, it conspires, it condemns, it cancels out any other contrary evidence and then it crucifies with impunity. He goes on to say, In our formative years, we are so self-preoccupied that we are both overly defensive and overly offensive at the same time, with little left for simple living, pure friendship, useless beauty, or moments of communion with nature or anything. Yet what kind of ego... Yet that kind of ego structuring is exactly what a young person partially needs to get through the first 20 years of life or so. What I love about Roar is he tells you about the first half of living and he doesn't condemn it. He says it's necessary, and it is. If you've been around children or you have children yourself, you know this. We learn dualistically. We learn right By learning wrong, we learn in by learning out. We learn up by learning down. It's how the mind processes early on. It is black or it is white. And you take in the information that way, and it's crucial. You're also building up your ego structure, yeah? You have to have a healthy ego. You need to know where you belong. You need to have your tribe, and what is a tribe if it isn't a nuclear family or a church? You kind of have to know who's in the tribe a bit when you're very young. The way I like to think about this, and uh, I shared this example with my wife, and she said, Oh, that's not a good example. <laughs> she's told the first half of living, though. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And she's not here. Um, <clears throat> I like to think of my son up at the plate. It's a baseball game. It's the bottom of the ninth. Three balls, two strikes, bases loaded. Everything's on the line. And I'm in the stands. And that ball comes across the plate. And boom, it's a moonshot. The crowd goes wild. He rounds the bases. He hits every one of them. He gets to home. He leaps into it. Everybody grabs him, lifts him up onto their shoulders and carries him off. I would love that. Wouldn't you love that for a kid that you love? Sure. You would want him to experience winning. At the first stage of your life, that's what we're often looking for. We're looking for a win. We're looking to kind of uh, build our kingdom. we got to get a car. we got to get a job. we got to get housing. We're looking for a spouse or a partner maybe. We're looking for these things and we're looking for wins. We're building our ego scaffolding within us. And that's a good thing. That roar would say, that's a good thing. And a child will tend to say, man, that was a blessing. I hit that home run, in the grand salami, yeah? And we can condone that. We can say, yeah, that is a blessing to win. But at the same time, as a parent, you'll also look over at the kid that pitched that ball that wasn't quite fast enough and see that child crying because you have a wider view, hopefully, of, of what the game produces. And you'll know that, wow, I hope my child can see that side of life too. I hope my child can see not, not only life being all about winning and building and growing, but also about suffering And there is a blessing in suffering also. I don't think the Pharisees are into looking at that. They're pushing away those who suffer, those who fail. The losers must sit at the loser's table. If we don't mature into the second stage of life, we become Pharisees. And we all have some Pharisee in us as it is. We'll try to protect our own. We'll grow in fear. We'll become defensive. It doesn't matter how, many, how much people praise you. It will never be enough. And every little slight, every time somebody says something or judges you, you will take it way too personally. It will cut you to the bone unless you can mature. I think the Pharisees are men at one point were immature boys that never matured as they took on more and more power and sat in places of privilege. We see it all the time. This is what creates redlining in neighborhoods. This is what creates walls and fear. This is why we would think we need more and more bombs to drop on people. People. Because if you have a dualistic mindset and you're stuck in that and you have never matured, you're always going to need a loser so you can remain a winner. The Pharisees were keeping the losers away from them to keep the structure intact. What can we actually learn from people that are hurting and suffering? Are you willing to go to somebody else's table and sit down with them as they're broken? Because there is a blessing there, a blessing that can change your life. I want to share with you a man that changed my life. Um, If you were at the night for City Hope two years ago, you've seen some of the images I'm going to share and you've heard some of the story but there was a member of our church named John Meadow. If you're new here, you would have never known him. He was probably uh, maybe around 12 years ago. And I have some illustrations that Brian Young, a wonderful illustrator who's um, back on the team for this Friday too, um, illustrated to t- so I could tell my story of my relationship and what I learned from John. John was from Napa. He grew up. He had a very difficult childhood. His mother was... Um, an alcoholic and in the sex industry he got bounced around from family to family um, never really had a home growing up John was a massive alcoholic a severe alcoholic I mean put Don Draper to shame alcoholic Um, and he said something that I'll never forget that was terrifying to me he said I like to drink and I like to drive when I drink that's how severe his alcoholism, and it had a hold of him. And as you can imagine, he racked up the DUIs. And luckily, he never seriously hurt anyone, but he did get in several car accidents. And so he finally entered into a recovery program down on 6th Street, and that's where I met him. And I had the honor of spending one year with Jonathan Meadow, uh, with John Meadow. And it was probably the only year he had from when he was a teenager and started drinking to the day he died that he was actually sober a whole year. And it was a massive accomplishment for him. We became very close friends. We did, in many ways, we didn't have very much in common at all. But we found out we both loved Pink Floyd, and it was on. We loved the same music, and we were kind of kindred souls in a way. And I spent hours and hours with John. Um, at that time, I was an intern here. I really didn't have a job. I just kind of got to hang out with addicts and inmates for a year. I got to sit with people, people that weren't like me. Um, and John was one of them. I brought John to church, and he actually became a member here at City Church. And he loved it. Um, at that time, uh, City Church was the, was the cool church, if you can imagine. <coughs> um We were booming. We had like three services. I wore a suit. I mean, we were really cool. Um, It was a dating scene. And John loved it. He was all into it. But he always would come um, away from it and say, yeah, I love the music. I love the message. But he'd always say the same thing to me. He said, it feels like the ceiling's going to cave in on me. And there was two reasons why he would say this. One was that he had done some really bad things in his life and he held that guilt and he felt like he was going to get smited by God. But the other reason was because he was a gay man. And though we were a really cool church, we were not really accepting of the LGBT community back then. I love what Peter said earlier about us being a humble church and we're progressing I really want to repent publicly of the ways in which I was not able to fully embrace John at that moment. But I did love him. I just couldn't love him completely for who he was at that time because I was wrestling with my own homophobia. I was wrestling with the things that were taught of me. So I want you to hear that. I want you to hear again what Peter said I really don't think City Church needs to be the number one most progressive church in the world. That's not the banner we need to fly here. We need to be a humble church that is committed to progress, moving forward towards God together, inclusively, loving everyone here. But at that time, I wasn't there. We weren't there. And the roof was caving in on John. Eventually, John relapsed, and um, at one point, he came to my house. He'd been living on the streets. He was really beat up, and I I found him um, a blanket. I had to go somewhere, but then when I came back, I went and looked for him, and he was uh, sleeping in Alamo Square Park. I lived on Scott Street at this time, and I looked throughout the park, and I found him in those bushes, and a life-changing experience for me was the moment that I paused to see my friend sleeping in the park with the blanket that I'd given him. We see homeless people every day in this city, every day. And it's hard to take in. But if you can take it in, if you can see the image of God when it lays there on the sidewalk or in the parks, I certainly did because that person was somebody I loved. Homeless, addicted, hurting, you know, eventually, I came, eventually um, I came to him, and I talked to him, and I was encouraging him, but he had really given up on sobriety, and he was in a free fall. I've had lots of friends die of addiction, and um, there's a lot of different addictions to die from me. Uh, I think alcohol is the, the worst, though, because it's the slowest, and he, it's been described as a slow fall, and I think that's pretty accurate. Um, he was slowly dying in front of me when I would see him. And I could not convince him for the life of me that, that he was loved by God. He just did not believe it, and he gave up. Eventually, he got an SRO um, hotel room, and in that room, he drank himself to death. I remember seeing him in there and having this amazing experience in that I was um, filled with so much love, so much concern for him. But at the same time, he couldn't feel it. And he was giving up. But for me, as my heart was breaking, I think God's Holy Spirit was coming into my life in ways that I had never experienced before. He ended up dying. And that's a sad story. But God has a way of redeeming things. I don't think that's the last uh, chapter of the John Meadows story. I just can't see what's beyond the grave. But I trust God. God loves John. What I do know is God uh, broke my heart and shattered it into a million pieces, but reformed it and resurrected it in a way that changed my life. I think if you always try to protect what you have and keep winning and keep staying at the cool kids table, you'll never know the blessings that come with a broken heart. You'll never be blessed by the suffering, whether it's a John Meadow or it's you. And you have to learn it for yourself in your own life. Who here has ever been lost? I mean, like seriously, seriously lost. Was it the ocean? Anybody? Lost in the ocean? Those are some of the best stories. Terrifying. (laughs) I see you, Caroline. How about the desert? Anybody lost in the desert? No? How about the woods? Yes, the number one contender of lostness. The woods. I want to tell you a story. When I was a junior in high school, my best friend, Isaac Martin, and I sat our parents down and had a meeting with them to convince them that they should drop us off in the woods (laughs) for spring break. I grew up in Oregon. Spring break was literally wild. We wanted to be in the wilderness. And uh, I told my mom I was going to tell this story, and she said, oh, don't tell that story. (laughs) I always look like a bad mother because she let me go. Um, they loaded us up in a truck, and th- we went down a logging road in the Cascade Mountain Range. It's very wild, very much the wilderness, and they just dropped us off for a week. And the reason why I think my mother allowed me to do this, because I was going with Isaac Martin. Isaac Martin, my best friend growing up, is like a mixture of like Wendell Berry and like MacGyver, like uh, <laughs> just like a really amazing outdoorsman, poet, just a really unique guy. Lives up in Alaska now on a little tiny island. If I was with Isaac, I'd be safe. What was stupid of me, though, was to get in the hugest fight with Isaac that I've ever gotten <laughs> in in my life. And we're, I remember we were walking, hiking all day long, because that's all we did all day. And he was like, I'm going to take you to a tree that I know about. And uh, <laughs> I carved Jessica Dahmer's initials on it. You got to see this. <laughs> you know, and my feet are tired, and I'm like, "Oh gosh, let's go back to camp." And I get annoyed, and I just start throwing pine cones at his back while he's leading me to a tree with some scratches in it. And I'm hitting him, and he turns around, and I'd crossed the line, and he drew the line again and said, "If you throw one more pine cone at me, I'm gonna kill you." <laughs> and so I picked up another pine cone. And I hurled it at him with like pinpoint aim because I didn't want to hit him. But it just whizzed right by his ear, just like. And that was it. It was on. He turned around and all of a sudden we are running top speed through the wilderness, in the woods, off the trail, into nothingness. (laughs) Woods, 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 running, trees coming at you. Eventually he grabs me, and I could not stop laughing because I also knew he was really good at at being an outdoorsman, but he was a horrible fighter. He just grabbed me and spun me around, knocked me to the ground, and I just started staring at the clouds. And he walked away huffing and puffing. He goes up this hill. He lays down, takes a nap on this, like, grassy knoll. And I'm just staring at the clouds because you have a week in the wilderness. This is what you do. I'm looking at the clouds. So I get up, and I walked right past him. The one guy that I need to be with, I got into this fight with him. I walked right past him, and I was really, really lost. And if you've been really, really lost in the wilderness, it is absolutely terrifying. I was so scared inside. So maybe you have experienced this. I'm telling this story. So emotionally, maybe the penny drops a little bit, and you're feeling like, oh, yeah, I remember when I was physically lost like that. But not everybody rose their hand, but you can raise your hand if we broaden lostness, yeah? Who here hasn't been lost in their life? Whether it's a divorce, a bankruptcy, whether it's just loneliness, whether it's depression. When your dream all of a sudden becomes your nightmare in some way, we have all found ourselves at one point in our life completely off the grid, lost. Lost. And here's the good news. God is like a shepherd looking for you. He'll he'll leave 99 behind just to find you. And when he finds you, he'll rejoice. He'll lift you up and put you on his shoulders. And it's party time then. God is like a woman, nine coins in her hand that she doesn't even care about that much because she wants to find the one missing coin. Who can't relate to that story? Anybody lose their cell phone? (laughs) This is a universal. And what does she do? She lights a lamp. She cleans the house. God will light a lamp to search for you. God will clean house to find you. And when God finds you, God will be so happy. I spent the whole day, it was getting dark, and somehow I stumbled upon our campsite. I was way far away, but I could see my best friend, and he was just sitting by the campfire like this guy, (laughs) kind of like freaking out, because he couldn't find me. And I remember yelling out his name. I'm getting a little emotional here. (laughs) And he ran up the hill to me, and we hugged. Just two teenage boys crying, hugging. (laughs) Spring break. No girlfriends. But man, we rejoiced. He was so scared for me. And that fight we had, we didn't even talk about it. It was just a joke then. We were reconciled instantly. He found me. He loved me. And I was safe once again. I hope you experience that in your suffering and in your lostness when you've lost your compass. Know this, just God is looking for you, seeking you, lighting a lamp, cleaning the house, ready to lift you up again. And I'm going to end with one more story. I used to be a preschool teacher right out of college because I only had an art degree. You couldn't get that many jobs. So I took (laughs) a preschool. And I had like 20, 20 uh, two three-year-olds. It was madness. Um, But there was always this one kid that his mom would always be late. His name was Hunter. And Hunter, you know, all the kids would leave. You know, I'd give him an extra snack or something, just killing time. And then one day he's like, okay, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, because that's what they call me. Mr. Paul, please, please play hide and go seek with me. I was like, okay, Hunter, we'll play hide and go seek. There's no other kids in the room. You can hide anywhere, right? And I say, okay, I'm going to close my eyes. You go hide. And so I counted to 10. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Ready or not, here I come. And I open my eyes. And he's standing right in front of me <laughs> with his eyes closed. <laughs> Just like shut really hard. And then he, I started giggling. He goes, you'll never find me. <laughs> I said, Hunter, open your eyes. I found you. A lot of times when we're lost and we're suffering and we're hurting, God's there sitting right next to you. He sees you. And he's just waiting for you to open up your eyes so you can rejoice because you found God. Let us pray. Lord, Just like Hunter, we ask that you would help open our eyes, open our hearts, open our lives to you more. God, there are going to be days when we win, and that's great, and we thank you for that. But Lord, we call out to you as the shepherd that searches for his sheep, for the woman that cleans house and lights lamps, especially when we hurt and we ache, for all those in this room that have experienced lostness. May we find your love more and more. And may that love drive us to go to the places where people are hurting in this city and in this world, that we might share in their sufferings with them and love them completely. We pray this in your name. Amen.